Listener discretion is advised. This episode features descriptions of violence and suicide that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. The year was 326 BCE, and Alexander III, King of Macedonia, Lord of Asia, was apoplectic. Alexander's army had been fighting for 10 years straight and marched over 10,000 miles. In northern India, on the banks of the Hyphasis River, they finally refused to go any further. They had no interest in helping their king achieve his bold plan of conquering the subcontinent. Instead, they forced him to turn back toward the sea and ultimately home. But Alexander was not about to slink back to Macedonia. There was fighting to do along the road, and he was enraged at turning backwards. So when battle came, he threw himself into the fray. As his soldiers charged a hostile town in the Punjab region, carrying ladders for the final assault, he thought they were moving too slowly. So he grabbed a ladder and rushed forward himself, climbing onto the enemy's citadel. His men raced after him in a panic. Their combined weight broke the ladder before they could reach him. Their king, the most powerful person on earth, was now alone and surrounded. Alexander fought by himself for a few tense minutes before three men rushed to his aid. One was killed almost instantly by an arrow to the face. Then, Alexander was struck in the chest. The arrow punctured his lung. Alexander dropped to the ground. Thousands of miles from home, deep in enemy territory, his life hung by a thread. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season, we're looking at dictators who set out to conquer the world, starting with Alexander the Great. Last week, we explored how Alexander's father, Philip II, made his son's conquests possible. We also covered Alexander's education, the assassination of his father, and the initial battles in his invasion of Persia. This week, we'll look at Alexander's final confrontation with Persian King of Kings Darius III, his journey into modern-day Pakistan and India, and his sudden tumultuous death. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. 
To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. In 336 BCE, at the age of 20, Alexander III became king of Macedonia. After securing his hold on the Greek peninsula, Alexander led an invasion of the vast Persian Achaemenid Empire, comprising Western Asia, Egypt, and parts of modern-day Afghanistan and Pakistan. Alexander defeated an army loyal to Darius III, the Persian king of kings, at the river Granicus in 334 BCE. In October 333 BCE, he defeated an army led by Darius himself at Issus. These victories proved Alexander's skill as a general and demonstrated the incredible discipline of his army. But the king of kings survived his defeats, and he still had myriad resources to assemble a new army. While he did that, Alexander needed to strengthen his position by focusing on his strategy for defeating the Persian navy, capturing the empire's western harbors. To that end, in the closing months of 333 BCE, the Macedonians marched south into Phoenicia, or modern-day Lebanon. When the local communities heard of the army's victory at Issus, they quickly submitted to it. The plan was going swimmingly, so far. By February 332 BCE, Alexander reached the coastal city of Tyre, one of the most important Phoenician communities and among the oldest continually inhabited settlements in the world. Old Tyre was built on the coast, but New Tyre was an island about half a mile from shore, three miles in circumference, and so heavily fortified that it was thought to be impenetrable. Once, many years in the past, Tyre had held firm against a 13-year-long siege. So the Tyrians, trusting their strong walls and the sea, rejected Alexander's call for submission. They wanted to claim neutrality. Alexander couldn't afford to leave the hostile city in his rear, and taking it was key to his strategy of defeating Persia's navy. Yet the king had only a handful of ships. Recognizing they couldn't assault the city by sea, Alexander and his officers decided to build a mole, or land bridge, from the shore to the island. Using stones from the old city and cedar trees from nearby forests, the Macedonians slowly and methodically extended their mole. Meanwhile, the Tyrians harassed them with bows and small ballistae, first from boats, and then, when the Macedonians came within range of the city, from Tyre's walls. As the mole drew nearer to the city, the Macedonians constructed two tall siege towers to cover their work. The Tyrians responded by filling a transport ship with kindling, setting it alight, and propelling it toward the mole. Upon contact, the ship's burning mast fell forward 
and crashed into one of the towers. The raging fire soon consumed the other tower, laying waste to weeks' worth of grueling labor. But Alexander was undeterred. He ordered that construction begin anew, and this time, the mole had to be even wider and protected by additional towers. More importantly, he secured some new allies, several Phoenician communities. They brought him nearly 100 ships. Cyprus, too, joined his camp and sent another 120 boats. Finally, Alexander had the advantage at sea. But still, the Tyrians refused to surrender. Eventually, the mole finally reached the new tire. Alexander ordered an assault. The Tyrians fought hard, but in the end, they had no choice. They were surrounded. They submitted. Alexander ordered that anyone taking shelter in a temple be spared. Otherwise, his men were permitted to take revenge as they saw fit. Thousands of Tyrians were killed in the sack of their city. Thousands more women and children were sold into slavery. After seven long months, the longest siege of Alexander's career was complete. After Tyre fell, the king resumed his march south. His path into Egypt was blocked by a Persian garrison in the city of Gaza, which Alexander captured after a two-month siege. Upon entering Egypt, Alexander was greeted by upbeat crowds. The country had only been reconquered by the Achaemenid Empire about a century and a half previously, after a long and bloody rebellion. Thus, Alexander was hailed as a liberator and welcomed. Alexander leaned into the welcome. He proclaimed himself Pharaoh and then founded a new city on the Mediterranean coast. This was one of many Alexandrias, but by far the most important. It would stand as the capital of Egypt for nearly a thousand years. But its founder would not stay for long. Alexander spent around five months in Egypt working on administrative tasks and campaign planning. He left in April 331 BCE, returning to Tyre, where he gathered his army. By now, the Persian navy, deprived of its harbors, had disintegrated, and Alexander prepared to march into the heart of the Achaemenid Empire. It was time to settle the score with Darius. Of course, some more men were in order for the project. They were drafted from Macedonia and Greece, and they swelled Alexander's army. It numbered around 40,000 infantry and 7,000 cavalry. But Darius had assembled a new army too, calling in warriors from as far as India. And while it's not clear exactly how many they numbered, his force was most likely still larger than Alexander's. The King of Kings had also decided to play things safer than last time he fought Alexander at Issus. He did not march out to meet the Macedonians, but instead waited for Alexander to move deep into the empire. Which Alexander did. He led his forces across the Euphrates, then marched almost 300 miles until he reached the Tigris in September 331 BCE. The Macedonians marched down the east bank, 
and finally, the Persians marched up to meet them. Near the city of Arbila, Darius chose an open plain for battle, where he'd be able to take advantage of his cavalry and scythed chariots and settled in to wait. The Macedonians stopped about seven miles from the Persians and rested for a few days, scouting out the field. Then it was time for the fight that would be called the Battle of Gagamila. On the morning of October 1st, the Macedonians formed their battle lines. The heavy infantry were in the center, Alexander and his elite companion fighters were on the right, and the cavalry was on the left. Darius's line was far longer than Alexander's and threatened to encircle it once the fighting commenced. In response, Alexander formed a second phalanx behind his first. In case the Persian cavalry did get behind the main force, the second phalanx could turn and fend them off. It was a complex formation, and only an army as disciplined and experienced as Alexander's could hope to pull it off. Once everyone was in position, Alexander ordered the army forward. The Macedonians shifted toward their right flank, and Darius then ordered his deadly scythed chariots to drive forward and break apart Alexander's lines. It seems Alexander ordered gaps in his formation to permit the chariots to rush through, which his men then closed in upon and eradicated. With the chariots neutralized, the Persian cavalry struggled to break open the Macedonian phalanxes. Nevertheless, the Macedonian left came under grave threat. A gap opened up and some Persian cavalry broke in. But the soldiers of the Macedonian second line surged forward and drove them off. Meanwhile, on the opposite flank, a similar gap appeared among the Persian cavalry. Alexander exploited it, ordering his companions to charge forward. Alexander wheeled and pressed toward Darius, who once again panicked and fled. Darius's panic spread through the Persian ranks until most of the army buckled and ran. Once again, Darius escaped, this time fleeing to Media in what is now northwestern Iran. Unable or unwilling to pursue him, Alexander consoled himself with the capture of the city of Arbila, where he apparently found 4,000 talents of silver and other luxuries. After proclaiming himself king of Asia, he moved on to the ancient city of Babylon, where on October 18th, he pledged to respect the rights and properties of its people. In response, the city submitted to him, apparently cheerfully. The locals cheered and threw flowers at the conqueror's feet, while for the first time, Alexander named a Persian as his satrap or local ruler for the region. Then he partied for several weeks before continuing on to the Persian administrative capital of Susa, which likewise surrendered without a fight. Alexander was now in the heart of Darius's lands. Not yet 30 years old, he was on the verge of conquering the mightiest empire on earth. But when the king next marched into Persepolis, the symbolic capital of the Achaemenid Empire, a crueler side of his character emerged, foreshadowing the dark days to come.
Coming up, Alexander plunders the heart of Persia and races to finally catch Darius before it's too late. I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Who forced a famed explorer to lose his way? What did a missing Hollywood starlet leave behind? And how could the heiress to a Chicago candy fortune just vanish? Every Thursday on Disappearances, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now, back to the story. In October 331 BCE, 25-year-old Alexander III, King of Macedonia, defeated the Persian King of Kings Darius III at Gagamila. In the battle's aftermath, Alexander captured the Achaemenid Empire's administrative capital at Susa. The full conquest of the empire was imminent. From Susa, the Macedonians began the 400-mile journey to Persepolis. Envoys from the city greeted Alexander and offered their surrender. Yet, for some reason, Alexander did not respond with leniency, as he had when cities surrendered in the past. Perhaps because Persepolis was the ceremonial capital, and thus symbolic of the Achaemenid regime or perhaps because he felt he needed to reward his men to keep them loyal. Whatever the motivation, the king permitted his soldiers to loot the city for a full day. The city's gold and silver paid well. If Alexander was harsh with Persepolis, he was generous with his men. Even ordinary soldiers serving in his army could expect to get rich like the officer that imported sand all the way from Egypt just to be used for his wrestling practice. But Darius had the resources to attract fighters too. And yet again, he had put together a new army, this time in Western Iran. In May 330 BCE, Alexander and his army set out to take it down. And once again, Darius retreated this time toward mountain passes in the Caucasus. Alexander hurried to catch up, but after days of marching, Persian defectors brought Alexander the news that Darius had been seized after a coup. The Achaemenid king was now held by a group of nobles, 
They were led by a commander named Bessus. With no more than his companions and some light infantry, Alexander raced toward them. He pressed hard, and by the time he came in sight of the Persian column, only 60 horsemen were still riding with him. Nevertheless, Bessus and his nobles, seeing Alexander approach, stabbed Darius III to death and fled. Alexander treated the body with respect, sending it back to be buried by Darius's mother. And that might have been that. With the death of the great king and most of the Achaemenid Empire conquered, Alexander's men assumed that the great project was finally done. But Alexander had other ideas. The king gathered his army and explained that Persia was not yet beaten. Bessus still threatened them. Just a bit more fighting was needed. His men trusted him, and they were well enough paid by him too. So they agreed to fight on. First at Hyrcania, then Aria, both of which submitted quickly. Meanwhile, Alexander's fears were proven right. Bessus proclaimed himself king of kings and took the regnal name Artaxerxes V. He had to be defeated if Alexander were to rule Persia. In late 330 BCE, 26-year-old Alexander headed south. He accepted the submission of several communities and founded another city, Alexandria in Aracosia, which is now Kandahar. But not everything was on Alexander's side. Conditions got harsher as he turned east toward Bactria, in the northeastern corner of modern-day Afghanistan. He pressed into a mountain pass of the Hindu Kush, climbing a path over 10,000 feet in elevation. His men struggled against the cold and lack of food. Shortly after crossing the freezing pass, the Macedonians had to cross 50 miles of blazing hot desert. Until finally, they reached the river Oxus. No sooner had Alexander crossed the water, however, that he learned that Bessus had been arrested by his own men. The same thing Bessus had done to Darius. After the pretender was handed over to Alexander, the king ordered that Bessus be executed after he was stripped and whipped and had his face mutilated. The grisly sight should have marked the end of the conquest. There was no new pretender. Alexander was the unquestioned ruler of Persia. And yet, Alexander had already decided on a new adventure. The conquest of India. Still, he knew his men were getting tired. Alexander may not have shared his plans for India with his troops yet. Instead, he probably emphasized the need to secure the newly won empire and led his troops to the river Jaxartes, which marked the northeastern border of the Achaemenid Empire. There, Alexander founded yet another city. Which did not prove to be a very restful activity. It provoked the locals, who did not expect or wish the foreigners to occupy their lands. The tired, frustrated Macedonian troops did not respond wisely. They confiscated local supplies and fomented rebellions in Sogdiana and Bactria, to which Alexander and his men responded with 
even more force. During one assault on the rebels, Alexander was hit on the head by a stone and knocked unconscious. For a short time afterwards, he couldn't walk and struggled to speak. Nevertheless, the Macedonians took town after town, slaughtering the men and enslaving the women and children. For two years, the Macedonians fought a brutal, relentless campaign to put down uprisings, fighting and killing almost without pause. At this time, Alexander is said to have drunk more and more, perhaps partially as a natural result of the hard-drinking culture of the Macedonian troops, but also perhaps as a result of the fatigue at the endless campaigning and frustration that he wasn't tackling his real goal, India. His men, meanwhile, were also becoming increasingly frustrated. Not only were they asked to keep fighting long after victory should have been theirs, but now the glory and plunder was meager compared to what they'd won against Darius. Many of them were also growing concerned with their king's behavior. Alexander had conquered a vast foreign empire, and in order to administer it, he adopted elements of Persian, or to Greek eyes, barbarian culture, including a Persian wardrobe, ceremonies, and even a harem with one woman for each day of the year. Meanwhile, he pragmatically employed Persian nobles, including those who had previously fought against him in his administration. A contingent of the Macedonian troops resented all of it. The tensions came to a head one night in 328 BCE, while Alexander was camped in the city of Marakanda, today known as Samarkand in southeastern Uzbekistan. During a drinking party, a singer began to mock certain Macedonian officers who had failed in battle, which seemed to delight Alexander. One of his favorite attendants named Clytus was drunk and annoyed. He complained that the Persians, whom he called barbarians, were laughing at the Macedonians. Alexander either insulted Clytus or tried to give him a friendly teasing. In either case, Clytus did not take it well. The veteran bemoaned Alexander's adoption of Persian culture and manners, the endless fighting, and the king taking too much credit for the work of the army. Alexander threw an apple at Clytus and called for his sword. A group of men hustled Clytus away in an attempt to defuse the situation, but Clytus broke free and returned to Alexander, who in response grabbed a spear and killed him. After Clytus's murder, the king attempted suicide. For three days, he then isolated himself and refused food or drink. The mood at court now shifted. Men now feared to speak too openly. In this climate, Alexander went hunting with one of his royal pages, a teenager named Hermelaeus. A boar charged at Alexander, but Hermelaeus stepped in and speared it before Alexander could. The king took this as an insult and had Hermelaeus whipped. Hermelaeus, angered, convinced a group of other pages to assassinate Alexander, apparently for mistreating them and probably for acting too Persian. 
The conspirators waited for a night when they were all assigned to guard Alexander's tent. But by chance, the king was at a drinking party and didn't return until dawn, when it was too late. Soon after, one of the conspirators told his lover about the failed plan, who told that conspirator's brother, who told one of Alexander's generals, who told the king. The teenage conspirators were put on trial and were apparently defiant to the end, the bloody end. They were stoned to death by their fellow pages. While Alexander's army whispered angrily in the background. For all of the king's charm, for all his godlike prowess, his soldiers could only endure so much before they rebelled. Coming up, Alexander finally begins his long-awaited conquest of India. Now back to the story. In spring 327 BCE, 28-year-old Alexander III came close to being killed by his royal pages, the teenage boys who were meant to learn at his knee. The youths had been partially motivated by a sense that Alexander was adopting too many customs of the defeated Persians and choosing foreigners over his own men. The plot was an alarming sign that many Macedonians resented Alexander's attempts to fuse the cultures of Greece and Persia. Nevertheless, the king was still beloved, and when he said march, the army responded, how far? By summer 327 BCE, the rebellions in Sogdiana and Bactria had been sufficiently quelled, and Alexander finally felt able to move toward India. He split his army. One half marched through the Khyber Pass in order to prepare a bridge across the Indus River. The other half, commanded by Alexander himself, marched through the Chitral Valley. Those communities that resisted the Macedonian advance were stormed and decimated. In early spring 326 BCE, the two halves of the army reunited at the Indus. After a month of rest, a makeshift bridge was built from boats lashed together, and the river was crossed. At least one local king came forward and offered submission, but another refused, King Porus of Parava in modern-day India and Pakistan. Porus gathered his army and marched out to the river Hydaspes, where he intended to block Alexander's crossing. Like Darius, Horus was said to be very handsome and tall. One ancient source claimed his height rose over seven feet. But however good he looked, Horus's kingdom was relatively small. It's almost certain that Alexander's men outnumbered Horus's. Still, Horus had two advantages. One was war elephants, perhaps a couple hundred. The Macedonians were familiar with the sight of elephants, but they had likely never faced them in battle. Porus's other advantage was the river Hydaspes itself, which was fast, wide, and deep, with no obvious crossing point. Alexander had only a handful of boats with him, so any attempt at a crossing would be opposed by Porus and likely end in disaster. Alexander decided his best bet for the fight was deception. 
He made a show of settling down on his side of the water, suggesting that he was planning to wait there until the river waters receded in the dry season. Secretly, though, Macedonian scouts found a crossing point 18 miles away from the main camp. A look-alike replaced Alexander in the main camp, wearing his clothes and pretending to be him, while the real Alexander took several thousand of his best troops to the crossing point under the cover of darkness. By dawn, the Paravans realized part of the Macedonian army was crossing on their flank. Horus took the bulk of his army to intercept Alexander. The details of the resulting battle are a bit confused, but it seems Porus deployed his cavalry and chariots on the wings and his elephants backed by his infantry in the center. Alexander, meanwhile, concentrated most of his cavalry on the right. Concerned about the elephants, he ordered his infantry to hold position until the enemy cavalry had been cleared from the field. Alexander's horse archers softened up the Parava cavalry and disrupted their formation. Then the king and his cavalry charged and routed them. Seeing this, the Macedonian infantry pressed forward and engaged with the elephants and Parava infantry. According to Adrian Goldsworthy, in places, elephants broke into the phalanx, trampling all in their path. Yet their mahouts, or drivers, and any crew sitting astride the animal's back were clear targets for javelins and arrows. They were killed, and often this made the elephants stampede, crushing friend and foe alike. In the chaos, the Parava lines broke. Porus fought heroically, but was forced to retreat. The Macedonians had won. The fighting took a toll. Several thousand Paravans were killed in the fighting, along with probably several hundred Macedonians. Alexander's faithful old horse Bucephalus also died, either from wounds or fatigue. In his old friend's memory, Alexander founded a new city at the site of his camp and named it Bucephalia. Politically, however, the battle was a success. As legend has it, when an envoy from Alexander reached Porus, he asked the defeated king how Alexander should treat him. Porus responded, like a king. Impressed, Alexander, rather than dethrone or execute his enemy, confirmed Porus as king and later awarded him more territory. He had a new ally. Meanwhile, 37 communities saw the results of the battle, and submitted to Alexander peacefully. With the help of Porus, they traveled south to India and destroyed anyone who didn't fall into line. The local Indians also informed Alexander that the edge of Asia was not nearby as the Macedonians originally believed. The subcontinent of India was far, far larger than Alexander had realized. The king was still eager to conquer all of it, but finally, his men had had enough. Some of his men had traveled perhaps 12,000 miles or more, and they were, in a word, done. The king tried for two days to persuade his men to press on, but to no avail. 
realizing that he had finally pushed them to their limit, Alexander ordered sacrifices and divination. These conveniently showed that the signs for continuing into India were bad. Having engineered unfavorable omens, Alexander could order a retreat and blame the gods for the move, thus saving face. The first step was building a great fleet of ships in order to sail down the Indus River. Since the river had crocodiles, the Macedonians concluded that it linked up with the Nile. The local Indians soon corrected them. The Indus flows into the Arabian Sea. Still, Alexander concluded he could traverse it, then cross the sea. Part of the army traveled down the Indus on the ships, perhaps 800 or more in number, while the rest marched alongside onshore. Perhaps as many as 120,000 people formed this procession. No one had ever seen anything like it before. Yet, for all the magnificence of the train, the journey was taxing and dangerous. As always, the Macedonians had to fight and subdue various communities in their path. During an assault on one enemy stronghold, Alexander became impatient at the apparent sluggishness of his men in bringing up siege ladders, and he decided to jump in by himself. The king fought alone for a short time before several bodyguards could rush in after him. And during the fighting, Alexander's lung was punctured by an arrow. It looked like the end. After all the great battles, a little skirmish had taken the great Alexander down. But in the end, he survived and kept marching, finally homeward. In summer 325 BCE, the army reached the sea. Here it split into three groups, two land columns and the fleet. One column was to return on the longer route, north, the way they came before turning west. Alexander would lead the other land column also north, but they would follow the southern coast of modern-day Iran through the barren, arid country of the Jodrosian Desert. The fleet, meanwhile, would cross the Arabian Sea and the Persian Gulf. Much of Alexander's journey was through blistering hot desert, where his army suffered from thirst, hunger, heatstroke, and exhaustion. One story from this time has a group of soldiers bring their king the last of their water, a tiny amount swirling at the bottom of a helmet. Rather than drink it while the rest of his men went without it, Alexander poured the trickle out onto the sand. But his gesture couldn't stop his men and pack animals from perishing on the grueling journey. By the time the army finally straggled into the city of Pora around December 325 BCE, many had died. As usual, casualty numbers are impossible to know for certain, but were likely in the range of several thousand, more than the army's heaviest losses in battle. Still, they continued on, reuniting with the second column and later the fleet. The diminished troops journeyed back to the heart of Darius's one-time empire, now his. In Susa, Alexander took a second and then third wife. Simultaneously, he arranged for a few dozen of his officers to take noble Persian brides. 
The women weren't given any choice in the matter, nor for that matter were the men who had to accept their king's wishes. His soldiers received new orders too. Alexander announced that he was releasing all Macedonian soldiers who were unfit to serve and sending them home. They were furious. They had assumed Alexander would lead them home in person. Instead, it felt like he was rejecting them. But for all the grumbling, Alexander got his way. 10,000 men agreed to return home. Many of them had to leave behind the local wives or romantic partners they had taken, as well as their children. Still, thousands and thousands of Macedonian and Greek soldiers remained with Alexander, who now had to figure out what to do with them. No achievement was likely to supplant the conquering of the Achaemenid Empire, but Alexander was too restless to just stop and rest. One tradition has it that Alexander heard the people of the Arabian Peninsula worshipped only two gods, and so he was filled with a desire to make himself the third. Other plans either considered by Alexander or attributed to him afterward included the conquest of Italy, Possibly, had he lived, he would have attempted to resume his conquest of India. For now, though, he prepared for an invasion of the Arabian Peninsula. Which is when he suffered a terrible loss. Hephaestion, his closest friend since childhood, and perhaps also his lover, died suddenly from fever. The king was devastated. He ordered magnificent funeral rites and for a cult to be set up in Hephaestion's honor. Then he distracted himself with a military campaign in the Zagros Mountains. When that campaign was complete in early 323 BCE, Alexander returned to the city of Babylon, where he resumed preparations for his Arabian expedition, and then one May evening attended a party held by one of his officers. There, the king ate and drank heavily. On his way home, he bumped into a companion named Medius, who convinced him to attend another party, where he drank some more. The next day, Alexander joined another feast and drinking party with Medius, in the middle of which he suddenly cried out in pain. Nevertheless, the day after that, Alexander again partied with Medius, but by now it was clear the king had a fever. Over the next few days, the fever grew worse. Soon he could no longer stand and had to be carried. Then he could no longer speak. On June 10, 323 BCE, or about then, Alexander III died. He was just shy of his 33rd birthday and had reigned for just under 13 years. In so little time, he had made himself one of history's first world conquerors. Some historians have suggested he was poisoned, but most agree he died of natural causes, perhaps malaria or typhoid fever. Years of hard campaigning, numerous injuries sustained in battle, a history of heavy drinking, and the anguish over losing his closest friend may have all contributed to a weakened immune system. Whatever the exact cause, Alexander's death was sudden, 
occurring before he had a chance to consolidate his empire or secure his dynasty. His first wife, Roxana, was pregnant, but an infant couldn't rule the vast rebellious territory he left behind. One story has it that as Alexander was on his deathbed, his generals asked to whom he wished to bequeath his throne, and he replied, to the strongest, or to the most worthy. Considering that Alexander was unable to speak by that point, the story seems implausible. Another story has a dying Alexander hand over his signet ring to Perdiccas, one of his commanders, thus signaling him as his successor. Whatever Alexander intended after his death, his most influential generals, later called the Diatokai, or successors, soon turned on each other and fought viciously for supremacy. Alexander's massive empire didn't last very long before it began to fragment under the weight of the successor's ambition. Many of them died violent deaths, as did Alexander's surviving family. His half-brother, Philip III Aridaeus, his mother, Olympias, his sister, Cleopatra, his first wife, Roxana, and their son, Alexander IV, were all eventually killed. For the next few centuries, the dynasties established by Alexander's successors fought with each other, local dynasts, and foreign powers. The last of the successor realms, the Ptolemaic Kingdom in Egypt, fell after its last ruler, Cleopatra VII, died by suicide in August 30 BCE. For thousands of years, Alexander would be the inspiration for countless other leaders, generals, and dictators. Virtually anyone with ambition who had learned of his exploits. From Julius Caesar to Napoleon Bonaparte, nearly any man who sought to lead other men, at least in Western society, looked to Alexander. Whether celebrated as a leader of unmatched accomplishment or condemned as a mass murderer, few humans have cast such a long shadow. In the words of historian Paul Cartledge, Alexander was one of the most extraordinary individuals ever to have walked the earth. He, above all others, deserves to be called the Great. But he's not the only dictator who set out to conquer the world. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll be back with the rise of Attila the Hun. For more information on Alexander the Great, amongst the many sources we used, we found Philip and Alexander, Kings and Conquerors by Adrian Goldsworthy to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Tony Goodman and Nora Battelle. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Richard Rossner.